Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Rebecca Moore. We're at Monk's Gate uh, in Carlton. It's March 2nd, 2020. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. Uh, First question, we're going to start a little bit differently today. Tell us about the property that we're on. Yeah, so um, the timing of this interview is wonderful, and I'm really excited to participate in this program uh, because I think my parents were kind of the third wave of um, planters in the area. They bought the property in 1998, and the vineyard started going in in 2000. So this is the 20th anniversary of the vineyard this year. When they bought the property, this area was not nearly planted out like it is now. Uh, Ghost Hill went in at almost the same time. Soder was here, uh, but I don't believe any, and Guadalupe was here over there, but I don't think anybody else was here. And um, they came up, uh, they came up from Napa, actually, where they were not in the wine biz, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about that later. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they, they wanted to get back to the land. Uh, they were from farming and ranching families in Colorado. And they came up with the idea to do a vineyard um, because they had planted vines up their driveway in Napa. My mom had shared office space with this guy, conference room actually, with a winemaker in Napa named Tom Eddy. And he bought fruit from us uh, for a while. And he had 52 extra Cabernet vines one year and he talked her into planting them up the driveway. And so they did and they made wine in the basement. Uh, That's actually their wine press right there on the barrel. I've got great pictures I'll show you about the crushing in the basement. Um, And so uh, they got the idea to do the vineyard. My dad was a cargo pilot. Oddly enough, cargo pilots have to retire in their Mm mid-50s. Passenger pilots can keep flying long after that. Uh, and so they knew they didn't have enough money to stay in Napa without an income. You know, my mom had been a software consultant for law firms and dad had been a cargo pilot. So they started coming up here uh, to look for vineyard land. And um, Emily Gladhart, actually from Winters Hill, mm-hmm. she used to be a realtor and she showed my parents this property. So they found this uh, and started doing the clearing. Prior owners had planted about 20 acres of Christmas trees to keep it in ag tax deferral, which was very popular to do at the time. And they were on five by five spacing and they were about 30 feet high. And the rest of the property, 50 acres, was covered in scrub oak and blackberry bushes. So it took my dad two and a half years to clear the land. He stumped over 35,000 trees. (laughs) Yeah, blood, sweat, and tears, literally. Uh, And then the vineyard started going in in 2000, and the last planting was the last of the Riesling in 2007. I've got about six to eight acres I can still plant, but right now we're 20 acres under vine. Why did they, you mentioned not being able to afford staying in Napa, why did they choose Oregon and why did they choose Carlton? That's a, you know, that's a really good question. I'm not entirely sure about that. I think that they started asking around. I think that certainly there were people in this area uh, during that time. You know, Ken Wright was up here. Um, the Letts had planted around here. Uh, the Sokol Blossers over in Dundee. And I also think this particular area um, kind of reminds me a little bit of Western Colorado where they're from. And, and when I, I mentioned that right away when I I came up and saw the property for the first time and they said they hadn't noticed that but I I think that that was part of it I think it was just a natural draw and I think that they saw 
they saw something similar to, you know, they moved to Napa in 1978. Mm -hmm. They moved to Napa when Yauntville, which is a little tiny town just north of Napa, was full of Section 8 housing and druggies in the park. Mm -hmm. I mean, you didn't go into the park after dark. Now you can't get a hotel room there for less than $500 a night. And so I think that they saw something, an echo up here of that area and, uh, and wanted to be part of, uh, of what was happening. Tell me about the, you, you mentioned starting planning in 2000. Uh, what did they, did they ever have an intention to make wine? Was it, was it all, was it going to be, what, what was Well, the I think everybody that plants vines pretty much makes wine at some point. Whether you end up doing it commercially or not, or do it for very long, are probably different, um, different issues. But uh, my parents had met Laurent Montelou, who I'm sure you're probably mm -hmm. familiar with. Uh, while he was still at Willa Kenzie, my dad did two creches there. And that was uh, at the end of Laurent's partnership there. Mm -hmm. And so when Laurent let it be known that he was going to leave and start his own business and he was going to start doing custom crushing for uh, small brands, he invited my parents to come along. And so I think that they had, you know, they enjoyed wine and they wanted to have some wine for friends and family and to drink and mm -hmm. uh, to pour on the big weekends and to pour at festivals. Uh, I think it's really hard as a farmer to not do something with the crop that comes off your land. Mm -hmm. So, but did they ever intend for that brand to be a commercial entity in and of itself? No, that's definitely where I came in. So let's talk about you. Then before, before wine, you had a whole other life going on. So tell us a bit about uh, your kind of kind of early life and, and college and, and, and initial job. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in the Bay Area and uh, went to high school in Napa, went to UC Berkeley, go Bears, uh, and always knew that I would be a lawyer. And I went to law school in San Francisco and practiced law in Oakland for 11 years. Really loved what I did. Ended up doing a lot of construction defect and premise liability. Uh, and then uh, had kind of a, a bit of an early midlife crisis. My law firm uh, was an insurance defense firm. And they ended up uh, doing something called key TAM work for one of their big insurance clients where you act as a private attorney general and you seek out fraud on behalf of consumers. Mm -hmm. And then that necessarily means insurance companies. Uh, and that was work that um, I just didn't feel that I was suited for. And so we had a natural parting of ways, which I appreciated because I'm still good friends with my partners. And uh, then uh, I came up and worked to harvest, which I had never been able to do. I had poured for mom and dad on and off at festivals and things like that, but um, came up here and worked to harvest and just fell in love with the land. Um, I was born on a cattle farm in Colorado and I was always a little bitter that I didn't get to grow up there because all my cousins did. And my parents took me out of Colorado when I was one and a half for my dad to go to flight school in Florida. And then from there we went to Alaska and then from there we went to California. So I was always a little bummed that I didn't get to participate in that kind of a history. And uh, I think it really is the case of you can take the girl off the farm but you can't take the farm out of the girl. <laughs> Because I love it here, I wouldn't. It's I can't imagine doing anything else. Not that I didn't love my law career, but this is this is home. This is what I was meant to do. Tell me about that that first harvest and your first impressions of that part of the industry of, of working on the grapes, working on the in the vineyard, working with the with the the finished product. Tell me about that initial impression. So amazing. I mean, the initial impression is wow. What a lot of work. And I had so much admiration for my parents and what they had built. They were in their mid-50s when they came up and did this. And they bought a 50-acre piece of property with a rundown farmhouse that, until about five years ago, only had a wood stove for heat. They lived in one room 
because there was no heat and the climate was colder then. And their bed, the living room, my mom's desk was all in 900 square feet. Um, they built this out of blood, sweat and tears and I just, I have such a deep appreciation and honor for that and for them to let me take a chance at being a steward of all that is, is pretty, pretty awing. Uh, and the workers that you get to work with, the people, you know, uh, there are no harder workers. They, they love what they do. Uh, I've, I actually became concerned, you know, for a little while that I felt like uh, possibly that they felt like they didn't have any other options and they were just doing this because they weren't highly educated and it, it's just what they had always done. But they trained to do this. They're conditioned to do this. They are joyful about it. You hear them singing out there and then when you're at harvest and the guys get into competitions running buckets to see who can carry the most buckets and get to the bin uh, before the other one. It's just, it's such an amazing culture. Mm -hmm. So from that first harvest, tell me what happens next for you. At what point do you decide this mm. is something you want to well, do? Well, so I did that harvest and realized how much I loved it up here. And so uh, I went down to uh, Napa. I was also married at the time. So I went down, back down to Napa, got divorced. Uh, and then uh, was suddenly homeless. And, <laughs> and of course, you jobless. Mm -hmm. So I needed a place to get my head together. And mom and dad had started going to Arizona for the winters. And I felt a little bad about this because they, they had just offered the place to this guy who was going to live here and take care of it. And I said, well, why don't you let me stay here and take care of it for the winter? Uh, give me a place to land and get my, get my head together. And so I did. And they came back in the spring and I never left. So we like to say they thought they'd childproof the house, but one got back in. <laughs> but I thought, well, uh, I love this, but, you know, I have a law degree uh, and I'm relatively young still. So I thought, well, I'll just go practice law in Portland. But meantime, I took a job in a wine club um, that was, uh, Laurent was partners in with a man named Steve Bailey. And it was Grand Cru Estates. It's, it's where uh, Grand Moraine is mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm. And so I was there for two years and my parents' wine was part of that club. So it was a private club where I sold people partial or whole barrels of wine, helped them do private labels, and then they got to have big fancy parties in the winery. And I didn't care so much about the party part and the label printer or Oh, was my bete noir. But I loved working with my parents' wine and I loved telling their story and I loved being a part of that and sharing it with people. Mm -hmm. So pretty much I came home one day and said, I know you built the vineyard to sell it as a retirement vehicle, but what if you didn't? What if, what if you gave me a shot at taking the business over and building it so that it supports all of us and we get to keep the farm and the family? Mm -hmm. And um, they have been kind enough to let me do that. So I spent the first two years doing all the tractor work. I enrolled in Chemeketa, uh, the viticulture program, and went through that. And also they used to have a marketing program, mm -hmm. so I enrolled in that at the same time. And then when I was done with the viticulture program, I thought, well, it's a shame not to understand what happens to the fruit after it leaves the vine, something you work so hard on. So I enrolled in the winemaking program, and, and that was it. I just, I got bit by the bug. Everything about it was just incredible. Mm -hmm. um, I was very grateful for my uh, background as an attorney and being able to go through dense material quickly because organic chemistry was almost the death of me. I had no science background whatsoever. I think I mentioned I always knew I was going to be an attorney, so I was an English lit major with a Russian minor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so uh, that, came in, that came in very handy. Um, that was some amazing, amazing material. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, the rest is kind of history, so I just started you know, nose to the grindstone. Tell me about 
what it was. We hear this a lot, bit by the winemaking bug. Mm. Like, what, what was it? Why? What, what excited so you about it? So fascinating, right? It's a mixture of art and science. It involves every part of your left and right side of your brains. Um, I think that people that have been making wine for a long time who don't have a hard science background will tell you they kind of wish they did. Um, they have learned through trial and error uh, what works. Every season is different. Mother Nature makes the call. You can do your, I think as a winemaker, your job is really to just kind of shepherd things through and to do what you can to keep them healthy, uh, make the most of the fruit that you're given and honor the process. And it's just, it's romantic, right? That's why people fall in love with wine. It's, it's sensory, it's memory, that bottle that you open and uh, maybe it's, you know, you're having the best day of your life or maybe you're not having the best day of your life, but that wine changes your life that day. And being part of the process of getting that into the bottle, there's just something magical about it. So you've, 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 you're in the education, you've, you, you're, you've decided winemaking is what you want to do, you, you have this idea with your parents that you're going to take this to the next level. So tell me what happens at that point. What do you do to take it from vineyard to commercial? Well, and I did think for a little while that I would be the winemaker, but I kind of came to my senses there. So I'm definitely underfoot in the cellar as much as I can be, but I am not the sole winemaker, so I wouldn't want to mislead you there. Mm -hmm. Our winemaker now is Drew Voigt. Mm -hmm. Laurent was my parents' winemaker from 2003 up to 2014, and that was a wonderful thing for them. He uh, guided them in their plantings. When the market crashed, uh, he was interested in leasing the vineyard, so he leased the vineyard for a number of years, which allowed my folks to just ride that out mm -hmm. uh, and not have to worry about selling the fruit and worry about the farming. But when we agreed that I was going to take the business over and try and grow it under our own brand, it made sense to take the vineyard back. And then it made sense to find another winemaker. Mm -hmm. um, and the minute I interviewed Drew, I knew this was it. He was willing to let me be as involved as I wanted to be or as hands-off as I wanted to be. Um, and the last couple years, I haven't been able to be full-time in the cellar. I'm hoping that that will turn around, you know, as I get more balance in building the business side of things. Mm -hmm. um, but that's kind of the, that was the progression of that. So I got, you know, I did the farming myself for a couple years, did all the tractor work, but it doesn't pay for me to be the one on the tractor. Um, and my attention needs to be here mm -hmm. building, building the business. So I uh, found a really good vineyard manager. Mm -hmm. I'm working with Chad Vargas, who is just fantastic. Um, and so, you know, I'm very, I'm very involved still in the farming planning. Um, we have meetings about what's going on, always proactive about what to do. And then with Drew, uh, we have multiple checkpoints through the year. I still uh, participate in the grape delivery and check in on the winery and sometimes, oddly enough, even go do a punch down or two when I'm feeling the need to exercise for a little bit because if you haven't done a punch down, you'll find muscles you never knew you had. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about building the business then. Uh, tell me about growing a brand for, uh, in, this, in this kind of way. I wish I could tell you like I had this grand plan and it's all gone to scheme. Not so much. It happens, it happens a little organically. I would say one of the most important things is to just be out there. You have to be talking to people about your story and your brand all the time. And you have to find a way to be authentic in your story and to make those connections because the wine business it's like no other and it really is all about relationships and so much of it is about emotion. Mm -hmm. Whether you're dealing with a consumer across the tasting bar or a retail account, people are buying into your story and they have to trust you mm -hmm. and they have to trust your product. Um, so I would say that you know, it's different for everybody. There's no grand business plan, I don't think, that's going to work out on paper and mm -hmm. 
you know, day A you're going to do this and day B you're going to do that because so often I start out my day with my list and if I get one thing done off that list during the day, I count that as a victory mm -hmm. because there's so many calls upon your time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, really it's about, I would say, persistence, authenticity, never giving up. Um, sometimes you have to accept no, but doesn't mean you can't go back. Um, tell us about the name. Monkskate. So we're so fortunate to have uh, this story attached to our land. Uh, when my parents were moving in and I was actually with them, they had the nerve to move on my 30th birthday. So we drove up here and the property, uh, as I said, was all overgrown and it was October and it was drizzly. We had the truck right out here and we were unloading it and these uh, two men in rain slickers came walking out of the woods. And, you know, this area felt very rural then, still does now, but really rural then. Mm -hmm. And I could just see my dad got this look on his face like, oh, no, it's going to get weird already. Do I have to go get the shotgun? What's going on? They were monks from the Abbey mm -hmm. and nobody had been living on the property for a little while. So they were as surprised to see us as we were to see them. And they started chatting with my dad about what were their intentions for the property. And he told them he was going to be putting in a vineyard. And then they became concerned about fencing. And he said, well, yes, I'll probably have to put in a deer fence. Why? And they said, well, we like to walk your property for meditation. And he said, oh, well, that's no big deal. We'll just put in a gate for you. Nobody thought anything else of it until they were trying to come up with a name for the label, because if you're going to make wine, you have to have a label. Mm -hmm. And they were working with a, a graphic artist in McMinnville, who I worked with. To, this is the second iteration of their label that I, re, I redid. And they were working with her, and they were coming up with names that you know just weren't, weren't resonating. Oaky this, foggy that, that type of thing. And, Finally, my dad says, well, you ladies have to go or figure this out. I'm going to go back to the farm and put in the monk's gate because that's how he thought about it in his head. Big light bulb goes off. The graphic designer, I'm sure, is like, great, you had that in your back pocket the whole time. Okay, we'll go with that. But then my mom, who had managed law firms for a career uh, and had just enough legal knowledge to be dangerous, said, well, okay, but... I would feel better if we ran this by the abbot. So she calls over and asks to speak to him. And the brother says, well, I'm sorry, he's in Europe attending a convention for the intellectual property protection of monasteries and abbeys. So she said, great, well, this is probably going nowhere. And he says, no, no, no. Email him a copy of what you want to say on the label, and he'll definitely get back to you with his thoughts. Mm -hmm. So she did, and a few weeks uh, after that, he did. And he basically said, you know, while the wording is artistically done, everything you've said is true. We have no problem with this. Mm -hmm. So a story was born and uh, we give them a case of wine every Christmas and they've been fantastic neighbors. I think that they were really happy to see the property become useful again mm -hmm. and get get cleaned up. You know, they have 1,100 forested acres over there mm -hmm. um, and one of their primary businesses used to be furniture and pews. So they would come over frequently while my dad was clearing the land and chat him up because they're also largely a silent order. You know, their abbot is of the mind that if your spoken word isn't devoted to God or to your menial labor, they're required to do four hours a day, then you're wasting your breath. So they were able to come over and kind of be chatty Kathy for a little while and I think still feel like they were honoring, um, honoring that, uh, mm -hmm. that philosophy. That's fantastic. So tell me about the, as you're developing this brand, what, what did you want the Monksgate philosophy to be? What did you want uh, to represent in the, in the wine industry? Well, I think the room that you're sitting in is a good indication of that. I want people to, to come to the property understanding they're on a working farm, that this is a real family that lives here, um, that we built this out of the ground, that we were not, especially because there's a, early on, and 
to some degree still is a stigma, right, about people coming up from California and, and Oregonians saying you just came up here with truckloads of money and boom, all of a sudden had this fantastic business going. And the truth is that's just not the case. Most of the, most of the wine brands in Oregon are less than 2,500 cases and are still family operations. So I want people to feel... I use the word authenticity. I don't mean to overuse it, but it's just, it's the right word. I want people to come onto the land and have an authentic experience. I want them to understand that, yes, the tractor works, and yes, I do know how to drive the tractor, and this is a working farm, and that we feel honored that we're shepherding a product from the ground. I mean, we are dirt to glass. Mm -hmm. We're in control of the grapes. I assist in the winery, and then I have the honor of sharing that product with people, and so I want them... And I want, I want us to be about education. My goal when somebody comes in for the first time is to understand what are they looking for? And, and perhaps how can I help them understand a little bit more about what they might be looking for? Mm -hmm. what, what is their palate? What, what wines do they prefer? They don't have to love mine, but if they can leave here with just some new piece of knowledge about what they like and why they like it, then I've done my job. Mm -hmm. Well, and hopefully also sold them a bottle of wine. Of course. Tell me about uh, the the plantings themselves. Uh, uh, what, wh how were the decisions made? What to plant and, and how much of it to plant? Oh, that's a good question. I am not the best source of that information because I wasn't here. Mm -hmm. So my understanding is that, you know, Dad, uh, my parents went through one of the first iterations of the viticulture program at Chemeca mm -hmm. when Al was still teaching. Mm -hmm. And so I think that they consulted with other people in the area. I'm sure they consulted with Laurent about what to do. They grow five different clones of Pinot. We've got uh, 2A Vadensville, 777-667-115 and Pomard. Kind of the usual suspects in a way, although you don't see as much of the 2A Vadensville. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, so they didn't do anything outrageously out of the box. Uh, I think they went with what people were doing at the time mm -hmm. and that what they thought had, with reasonable certainty was going to be successful because they built it to sell it. Mm -hmm. And now you have uh, Rosé also I see as well, and you mm -hmm. mentioned Riesling. So tell me about the kind of development of those. Yeah, so um, we wanted to make a Rosé starting in, uh, well, my parents made one in 2009, but that was just, they, and they didn't make any, any Pinot, but that was because all the Pinot got sold off as bulk. Mm -hmm. um, but when I came up here, I said, we have to make a Rosé. We need a white wine on the board, and I love Rosé, so let's make Rosé. <laughs> and... Um, so we started making rosé, and I farm a very specific part of the Pomard, actually, to do it. So we call it the North Block Rosé because it is the most northeastern block of the Pomard. It's up against a tree line, so I find that the, but I find that the shade from the trees, especially in our warmer uh, years, um, keeps the fruit shaded a little bit more and helps the fruit retain its natural acidity. And we do a direct press rosé. So this is something that we came up with uh, in conjunction with Drew and it has been super successful because so many of the rosés on the market are sanyis, right? They're byproducts mm -hmm. of concentrating color in an underlying red wine. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted something that was more original and so we came up with this where the fruit goes whole cluster into the press just for a brief amount of time. You can see how pale the color mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. uh, but it has a lovely soft tannin structure on the palate in addition to the bright acid and pretty fruit that you want a rosé to have. So it's fairly unique. 
And then the Riesling, uh, Riesling went in between 2005 and 2007. What drove the planting of that block? I'm not entirely sure. Mm -hmm. uh, Riesling was fairly prevalent in the valley. Um, I think the first wine I really liked was an off-dry Riesling made by Daryl Satui. And you could get it for $7 a bottle with your picnic lunch on the lawn. What was not awesome about that? Uh, and so I think, again, because they knew that they needed to have a white, that Riesling was a, a natural fit. And mm -hmm. while people were trying Chardonnay up here at that time, nobody had had a lot of success with that. And there was so much of that in Napa. I don't think they wanted to try and repeat something that they felt was being overdone anyway. And I don't recall my mom ever liking Pinot Gris. So I, th I, think, I think Riesling was the natural, the natural choice. I'm curious what their uh, reaction was. Or uh, obviously, they had this idea to plant a vineyard, and they and they planted it. And obviously, it was, it was a ton of work. I, I'm curious, it, was it all? Did they always appreciate the decision? Was it always something they were happy they had done? Did it was it more work than they anticipated? Well, I think once you undertake something like that, yes, there's always points where you wake up in the middle of the night, what have we done? Oh my gosh, you know, uh, we're living in this living room with a wood stove for heat and uh, lots and lots of challenges along the way. Their living room furniture was lawn furniture for a period of time. Uh, I have no doubt that they, there were times where they really looked at each other over the dinner table and said, are you sure? Really sure? Mm -hmm. But there's also something about once you commit to that process, and my parents have always been... Um, dedicated to whatever they have undertaken and I think that they felt I think they felt a, a duty to to see it through and there's something about transforming a property and there were just so many things about this property that I think resonated with them mm -hmm. and their own histories from Colorado that it was just like we're, we're meant to do this this mm -hmm. is something we need to see through mm -hmm. and like I say when the market crashed uh, then they you know they had the fortuity of being involved with Laurent and he leased the vineyard for a while mm -hmm. so that helped carry them through and then, of, of course, working with family can be, can be a challenge sometimes. I'm curious about that relationship as you're trying to kind of grow your own brand, grow the family's and name. And we live together <laughs> in the same house. We're living together in the same house. With one bathroom. Well, that's even more complicated. So, <laughs> so tell me about that, about that uh, meshing of, of Well, styles. you know, what I have to say about that is that my mom and I have grown up a lot. Uh, and we don't push each other's buttons as much as we used to. The first couple years were fairly rocky. I don't think anybody would say differently. Um, but I also think that they have perhaps been a little surprised uh, that I was able to, to take this on and really wrap my arms around it and that, um, that the farmer is so deep in me and that it came out so readily. Uh, so I think we've always honored, you know, yes, there have been lots of times where somebody had to leave the room and, <laughs> and more than one or two family squabbles. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I respect deeply what they've built and want to honor it. Uh, my, my business card says successor in interest, which is both um, a, an ode to my past as an attorney, but also indicative of that I've taken a family business over and always want to honor the original roots of that business and their intention for the business mm -hmm. while still putting my own spin on it. And mm -hmm. I think that they have been pleasantly surprised and really proud mm -hmm. to see that happen. And who doesn't want to see something that you've built get passed down, mm -hmm. you know, to another generation and have them make it even better than it was before. Uh, as you've, uh, 
as you sort of seen all the industry now, is there a certain part that you particular? You, you seem to talk about the farming the most. Is that kind of your favorite part of the industry? Like you well, it's certainly the majority of where I spend my time, mm -hmm. right? I, I don't get off the farm a lot. My dad, my dad likes to say, and this used to just send me that uh, you don't own the farm; the farm owns you. And he's absolutely right, mm -hmm. and I have accepted that. Uh, and it is without the farm, no, none of none of the rest of this happens. Would I do this if I had to buy the fruit? No, mm -hmm. I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, I I love the farming part of it. I love the shepherding things from the ground part of it. I'm very proud that we're dirt to glass, and there are lots of people who aren't interested in that part of it, and you know love the diversity of sourcing fruit from different mm -hmm. areas and doing blends like that, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. I'm really proud that we're all a state. I think Mother Nature gives us. Uh, all the variety that we need. I can make wine for the next 50 years out of these five clones, I like to say, and never make the same wine twice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just find that spectacular. And, and about selling the wine, I'm curious about your experiences from that aspect Tough. of growing a brand and, 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 and coming onto a crowded marketplace. You know, there's a lot of good wine out there. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It is getting harder every day to raise the bar. And I go back to when you sell someone that bottle of wine, whether it's a consumer or a retail account, you are selling them your story. Mm -hmm. And they're buying into your authenticity. And they're buying into that relationship with you. And that's, that's really where the value is on both sides. And so there is literally something for everyone. Like I said, you don't have to love my wines. Hopefully you'll appreciate what we do, mm -hmm. but there's something for everyone. And, and so it's finding that segment and I have not gone about it in a scientific way. Yes, I go to the wine symposium. I have copious notes about what I'm going to do when I get home. And then some of those things bear out, but at the end, I, I also find that it's just, it's being out there. It's building the relationships. It's making the contacts. It's, you're always on. I've always got a pile of business cards with me, no matter where I am. On vacation, even, you know. Okay. Even in a, I go to Kauai because I'm lucky enough to have a, a cousin that lives there. And, and I go every couple years and she puts up a tent for me because she lives in a tent. And I take business cards there. Even though it's a three-tier state, I'm never after a retail account. But I'm just looking to make connections. Mm -hmm. And I've made some amazing friends and some which have actually shown up in the tasting room. So it's, you know, word of mouth mm -hmm. and generosity and authenticity those are my best marketing tools mm -hmm. and i find that more and more that's what people are looking for you know the wine spectator you can spend i think it's thirty thousand dollars for a one-page ad that will run for one month and there are people that do that and that's their brand and that's just fine mm -hmm. uh, it's not us mm -hmm. i couldn't possibly do that and i don't want to <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious uh, when you have a product that's this personal, as you've talked about, this, sell selling your story, selling your family story. Yeah. Uh, how did you learn to deal with people who, who didn't buy, who who weren't interested? Well, I guess perhaps being a litigator for 11 years, I have a fairly fairly thick skin, and. Um, I'm okay with, like I said, you know, sometimes you have to take no, mm -hmm. and I don't ever want to force what we do on someone. If, if they're interested in it and they want to know more and they want to learn more, I'm more than happy to be here and give them the information. But I'm not out there to convert people to my brand because that never works. Mm -hmm. Even if you talk somebody into something once, are they going to come back for it a second time? I don't know. It's, it's such a gamble. It's such a risk. Why not, why not focus on that, that original connection mm -hmm. and build on that and find out what they're looking for and then if I'm a fit for that great what would be the ultimate uh, takeaway or, or compliment someone could to give uh, a glass of your wine or oh wow um, 
because wine is such a personal thing, like I said, and there's so many different things and there's something for everybody out there. So I would have to say that it would be that somebody really appreciates what we've done. It would be perhaps for me less about their subjective view of the quality of the wine and more about have I done what I set out to do? Do when they drink that wine, do they have the feeling um, that we love what we do, mm -hmm. that we're devoted to what we do, and that we're in it to provide them the best quality product that we can, but having that, having that real passion for what we do. If, if I can convey that to someone in a way that they believe, then that, I think, is the highest mm -hmm. compliment that I could get. So tell me about the, the progress of the brand from when you started making commercial wine to now, uh, in terms of size, in terms of amount of, uh, amount of wines being offered. Uh, is it about what you expected? Are you about where you want to be? Actually, that part of the business plan, yes, <laughs> has flushed out. Um, because I'm never, I've never had the intent to be a large brand. Um, right now I harvest about 60 tons in a season. And if I made wine out of all of that, I'd be doing about 3,500 cases. And that would, that would involve a distributor. And that's just not my model. It's, it, because once you, once you go down that, that road, then that's another relationship that you have to manage. And then you have to start spending a lot of time doing that. And as a small brand, uh, nothing will kill you faster than having a couple pallets of your wine sit in the corner of somebody's warehouse that doesn't move. Mm -hmm. I'm a hand sell. I am in some restaurants. I've been in and out of some bottle shops, but only because people there really resonated with what we did and they wanted to hand sell our wine. And then people are thrilled to have it that way. But I move most of my wine right here over the tasting bar and building a wine club. Mm -hmm. And again, that's because I'm interested in the long term. It's sounds like dating, right? We should have a, a wine app for this. Um, but I'm, inter I'm interested in the LTR, the long-term relationship, because that's where the value for both of us is. You learn to trust me. Mm -hmm. I learn more about you and what you're looking for, and hopefully I can provide that to you, and we find value together. And I think that that is the most rewarding part of it. You know, somebody can wander in, buy a bottle of rosé, and I'll never see them again. That doesn't really, it's not, it's not what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. yeah. The, is that the one night stand of, of that would be the wine? one night stand of selling wine okay. yeah just making sure we're keeping the metaphor yeah right that's excellent <laughs> um, don't curious, tell the other <laughs> i'm curious what your uh impression of the oregon wine industry was when you first sort of became part of it whether it was first harvest or first launch in the business and, and how maybe how it's how it's changed in your eyes uh, to now yeah um i don't know i didn't have an impression when i came up here because you know i came to this sideways mm -hmm. so um, and, and also coming up from, coming up from the Napa Valley where things were, you know, very commercial and very successful. Uh, I appreciated the, the grassroots aspect of things here. I loved the fact that you could go into a winery and actually talk to somebody who was the winemaker or the owner or uh, was boots in the vineyard or at least involved in some way in the production part of things. I think even now if you go into a tasting room, lots of the tasting room folks rotate in and out of the cellar during harvest mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's just part of what we do here. And I think that that's unusual. I think that that is fairly unique to our community. And not that people in the wine industry in Napa don't support each other and don't have a community, but I just feel like that's how, I think it's more prevalent here. And I'm sure you've heard this many, many times in the hundreds, possibly thousands of interviews that you've done. 
uh, and so I don't want to, to beat the dead horse, but it's, but it's so true. Mm -hmm. And there's so many great examples of that. You know, when Jimmy Brooks passed away, or Jessica Moiseko, I think you, you mm -hmm. interviewed her recently, mm -hmm. and when um, that tragedy happened with her family, and, and the community just rallies around you and says, what do you need? Do you need fruit hauled? Do you need fruit crushed? Do you need pelt picking? you need whatever it is you need, we're, we're there to help you because we realize that um, you know, all boats do float on a rising tide and mm -hmm. instead of beating each other down, we're more successful and stronger together and that ultimately bears out in the sales side of things. Um, so uh, yeah, I would say community. Mm -hmm. And I also think grit determination. It's not as easy up here, right? Especially uh, even though we've had uh, gentler summers, easier harvests by and large, uh, climate change is real. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if people are looking at planting some bigger varietals up here as things are getting warmer. Cherry orchards are going by the wayside because it's it's just not cool enough for them anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's it, you know, when, in the 60s and 70s, when the Letts and the Sokol Blossers and, and those folks were doing it, it was really, really hard. And it's still hard now. We still have a fairly short growing season. And last year was a good example of that. We had that wetter, that wetter summer. And there were people that had been farming up here for only three or four years that were really taken off guard because mm -hmm. they came up and said, oh, what's so challenging about this? I don't understand what, you know, what was the big deal? Well, that's the big deal. Mm -hmm. We have a shorter season. We can get rain all the way through July sometimes. Sometimes we've only got a 90, 100 day window with no rain mm -hmm. and you lose whole blocks to botrytis. And if you're not diligent in your leaf pulling and your spraying or whatever, you know, viticulture practices that you're doing, you have to be you have to be really cognizant of that. And as stewards of the land, we can't tell Mother Nature what to do. So you just have to be aware of what she could do <laughs> and do the best you can in those eventualities. And I don't think, I think that you have to be so much more precise about that up here than in other regions. At what point does that become something you're if not comfortable with, at least doesn't panic you, the idea that the 2019 vintage could happen and you have to be able to deal with it. At what point did you become better with that? Again, I think my, my prior career helped in that regard because as a, as a defense attorney, I was always counseling my clients on proactive measures. Don't call me because you need me. Call me because you have questions about how you can avoid needing me. And I think, I think that that stood me in really good stead. Uh, and farming's a gamble. And again, I think that the farmer girl that was always in me was kind of prepared to take those risks. You know, as long as you do it respectfully, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. don't be cavalier about it. Mm -hmm. That will get you in trouble. So as you look ahead for Oregon wine, you mentioned a lot of the traits you see in it now, the kind of grit and determination community. What do you see as you look ahead for the next 10 years? What is it gonna look like in, in 2030? Well, I'm hoping it doesn't look like um, the over-commercialized version of what we are now. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to name other regions, but I, I hope that we keep our very rural feel. Uh, I want us to keep working on quality. I think there's a lot of good research going on in the fields about different varietals, different clones, things that we can have better success with. Chardonnay is a great example of that. The last five, six, seven years for Chardonnay have been huge up here as people have revisited those clones and found out what really works. Um, what are the styles that we can practice mm -hmm. up here that set us apart from other regions that are doing that same clone. I think the spirit of innovation is going to continue and I'm really excited about that. 
And I think that something that this area has going for it that other regions didn't perhaps is we've, we've done a good job of keeping our, our agricultural diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so tempting to just convert all the land that is high value farmland into vineyards because people perceive that as being so profitable. Mm-hmm. But it is the long range game and you also have to realize that if you commit all of that land to one crop, if you get a blight or something that moves through there, then you're toast. Mm-hmm. And and it's just, I don't think it's a healthy way for the ecosystem to survive. So I love the fact that you can look around where we are right now and we have grass seed fields next to vineyards. We've got hazelnut orchards are going in almost as fast as vineyards are, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, we have lots of just working mom and pop farms. Mm-hmm. And I think that as long as we can keep all those different kinds of, of agricultural diversity going, we have, that's, that's a huge strength for us. Mm-hmm. And I think it keeps things interesting. And I think that other regions, the farm to table movement came after the wine, but the farm to table movement was already here as the wine was developing. Mm -hmm. And so people already value that very highly. And the fact that these two agricultural practices, products, however you want to look at it, marry so well is only great for everybody Mm -hmm. because then farmers who are doing row crop crops and things like that aren't incentivized as much to sell out to some big company and plant a bunch of stuff on the valley floor um, you know plant vineyards on the valley floor it's keep those up on the hillsides and and let that rich farmland on the valley be devoted to other things absolutely so about as you look ahead for yourself and for Monksgate where do you where do you hope to be as you look ahead what's what comes next Yeah, so all these planning questions. Um, so I'm at about 1,100 cases. When I took started taking the business over almost six years ago now, uh, we were right around 325. So that's that's appreciable. Uh, and I've, I'm going to top out at some number what that is exactly. I'm not sure, but I will probably keep it less than 2,000 cases because there's also a tipping point, like I talked about before, where if you have to start spending more time behind your computer and on the phone managing sales channels Mm -hmm. rather than thinking about your farming and your winemaking and your relationship building, um, that's... I don't want to go to that that other side. So what that magic number is, I don't know. I'm going to feel my way to it. Mm-hmm. Anything you're excited? Is there anything you're excited to try or change, or is it kind of is this kind of what you want to do? Just a little bit more. Well, the barn that's taking itself uh, apart behind you, I would love to. Uh, I would love to see that be the tasting room. That would be a huge project for me. Mm-hmm. Um, something probably more doable in the future that I'm really excited about is we have some wonderful oak trees on the property and I've started talking to some folks about doing the oak savanna restoration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Lots of different conversations happening around that. Some people are for it, some people aren't. but I would love to see the fir understory that was not supposed to be here anyway cleared out and give the give the native plants time to come back. We have two really nice stands of oak trees, this one just to the north behind the house and then up on the southeast corner of the vineyard. And I would love to see those developed and turned into educational spots, you know, do some signage for folks because we already have the public on our land. So I would I would love for folks to to be able to be more knowledgeable about, yes, we came and put this vineyard here. The vineyard's not native to the land, but we've done a, a good job restoring all these other areas mm-hmm. that are. 
Uh, we also have a pond on the property that uh, people visit us that used to live here and say they used to ice skate on. And I would love to rehabilitate that. I think that would be good. I think that would be a lot of fun and serve as a, uh, a resource for the, the animals that we still have here. I know we have bobcats in the neighborhood. We have coyotes that live up on the south part of the vineyard. I'm pretty sure I saw a wolf once and uh, lots of deer. <laughs> but I would love to, you know, build the ecosystem, put in more plants that are, you know, we have lots of hummingbirds and butterflies and just keep building keep building the system so that it's not just about the vineyard but it's about the health of the whole property Absolutely. and and i'm just curious to sort of sort of a last question here what your <clears throat> as you look back to what your parents started 20 years ago uh it has to must, must make you feel pretty proud to have come to this point now so uh, kind of can you kind of encapsulate like, like the last 20 years of this of this property and, you know, <laughs> In some ways, <laughs> it's a tough question. I know. the last is, is, twenty years you know, from from what they bought to what it is now. Uh, is there a way to kind of? Uh... Oh my gosh, um, I don't think so because it, because it's uh, it's an evolving story. It's an evolution, right? It's it's always a progress, and that's something I like to learn something new every day. And I think that having the honor of being able to do this for a living, mm -hmm. I just want to see it keep improving. What that means, I'm not exactly sure because like I said, yeah, I've got a business plan on paper, but it's not always what ends up happening or driving the process. Mm -hmm. um, I like it to be as natural and organic as possible. So, but to encapsulate like what my parents have done, I would just say, wow, so incredibly proud of what they have accomplished and uh, having done it at that time in their lives when most people are thinking about how can we put our feet up, you know, and uh, go to Boca Raton or how can we spend more, well, and, and that has been part of it though, how can they spend more time in Arizona? That's where they are right now uh, with their feet kicked up and that was the goal that they would get to be there for six months and then spend the summers here. Mm -hmm. And this last year we've actually achieved that. So I'm very, very happy and proud about that. Uh, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess I don't have it. I don't have the tight answer for that's that. That's perfect. I have never really asked that question before. I wanted to see. I wanted to <laughs> I was, see how it landed. I was the guinea pig for that. Thanks. <laughs> that was great. It was a great answer. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's all. The, all the questions that I have for oh, you today. Is well, there anything that I didn't ask that I should have? Anything Ooh, we didn't cover? I, no, I don't think so. And if you want to, um, we can look at the pictures Abs and absolutely. you could. If there's anything you think is interesting, I'm more than happy to scan it and sure. send it to you. I'm not ready to let go of originals I yet. I understand absolutely. Um, but but I think it's uh, I think it's fun because I'm not sure that. There are a lot of uh, a lot of places that you get to hear the histories of that that are both the growers and the producers because I think so many people feel like well we can just do one mm -hmm. you know we'll we'll be the winemaker and source our fruit or we're just going to be the farmer make a little wine but we're going to focus on selling our grapes mm -hmm. and I have so much admiration for my folks in starting you know yes the vineyard was the primary thing but but starting the label and they they actually made they made a very nice reputation for themselves I would like to make it clear that I've only building on what they did. Mm -hmm. I am by no means solely responsible for the reputation that the brand started out with. While I'm certainly responsible for the growth of it and the evolution of it, they were already fairly well known in some small circles and got invited to uh, things like the Indie Wine Festival in Portland. That was not easy to get into. Uh, and they've, they've always enjoyed a, a good reputation. So very proud of them for that. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for thank joining you. us today, for telling us your story and their story and the story of this awesome land we're on. And My honor. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook here. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.